Hello, Yankee lovers and Yankee haters alike, and thanks so much for being part of the audience for Scoring at the Movies episode number 87. We go back a ways to look at old sports flicks, and we just can't help spoiling them. I'm the dull Dakotan who cries when he's all alone, but who then went and got that fat fuck, Ryan Ellis. And here's the man who I hope is proud to be my teammate, even though he's the crass fan favorite with a bad knee, Slick Christy Gregorio. Well, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, that might be one of the most accurate opening descriptions of me you've ever laid out there. It's on the short list. And I was a little worried that I wouldn't be able to make this podcast record this week after the grievous injury I suffered at our softball game this past weekend. But thankfully, an acquaintance of mine managed to hook me up with a shady doctor type that injected me with some no-name substance, and I feel great now, so <laughs> ready to go. You're not all used up. I'm not all used up. I do have this disturbing, enormous abscess on my right butt cheek. Bit of a David Cronenberg horror moment at that point, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God, that was horrible. <laughs> well, that's the nutshell for the movie. I'll do it right now, off the very top here. The flu shot ruins Mickey Mantle's chance to become the single-season home run king. Because that's what the movie's suggesting. I'm all used up. I'm done. And we see why, as you just said, that abscess on his hip. God, how did he play through as much as he did? Well, they imply the man's extremely tough. We know that much. Yeah. And all players are. Whenever you hear about how that guy, what's with him? He's not tough enough. Anybody's a pro athlete and plays through the things they play through is tough. And you think about baseball players. No, they're not tough. Yeah, but they do this for six months straight. And the spring training part of the season and the postseason, which the Yankees were so often in. Don't say they're not tough. They are. Some more than others. But yeah, of mm. course, they're tough. And I think Mantle, notoriously, tougher than most. Now, what did you think they were implying was actually in this shot he gets it because it's like a combination of him not feeling great generally but then specifically he injures his arm right that's no it's because he has a bad flu that's why i said oh, the was flu it, shot is it the flu that's the joke the flu shot oh, okay, and it's I mean. mel allen christopher mcdonald of course i'm happy gilmore shooter mcgavin yeah complete opposite character here nice guy mel allen did the yankees broadcasts forever i think it was and he sounds close enough i guess he does Sounds the good. how about that thing but he's the one that suggests this I've felt sick in the afternoon, take a shot that night, you never know I was sick, so it's a form of PEDs, really. I thought they were implying it was some form of amphetamine or something. We've talked at length, obviously, about steroids versus accepted drug use in baseball through the decades, and there's the notorious stories of bowls of the quote-unquote green candy in the greenies, locker rooms, yeah. the greenies, that were just poppable amphetamines. But when you hear something like, yeah, this sketchy back alley doctor guy that i know that will shoot you up with something and you won't be feeling any pain in a couple hours that is clearly some sort of upper right it's gotta be well you mentioned our softball playoffs and there is a moment and i've been in rough shape this year i guess everyone is but i've got a weird groin i guess injury in my left side keeps me from putting my socks on very well but i was playing catcher one point and you were batting i was catching for their team because they were shorter players and you remember this well i'm in it baby <laughs> And I felt like I had some sort of PED at that moment. I was really jazzed. I didn't feel any pain. I wasn't really feeling pain to squat to play catcher anyway these last few weeks or to umpire in our league. I did that sometimes. I don't know why. I probably should have. 
But I felt great. But then I got tired because it was a longish game and I'm old. Yeah, but you felt great. It had nothing to do... It was natural. It was yeah, it had nothing to do with what you asked me to inject into your butt shortly before the game. It we was, did that afterwards. That was your yeah. post-game PED. I forgot about that. We came right, home, right. saw the wives. We went inside here, and they didn't know what we were doing, and that was it. Yeah, okay. Well, that checks out then. All right, open that beer. <laughs> Use your PEDs. Yeah. I don't think beer enhances anything. Your performance dehancing. It only enhances my own sense of self-worth. Perhaps. PDD. Yeah. So what is it over there? So one thing I quickly took away from the early bits of this movie, at least, is they really go to great lengths to try to establish, at the very least, mantle, but the Yankees of this era as being not bad guys, because I think notoriously Mickey Mantle is actually a pretty good guy, and they try to set that up in this movie, too. But a Hellraiser. That a Hellraiser, and they're crude, and they're just doing their damnedest to be men's men in, like, the 1960s meaning of the word, right? That blonde over there has got the biggest tits I've ever seen. Exactly. So... In keeping with that manly theme, I went with a blueberry lavender kettle sour. <laughs> lavender, that's good. <laughs> Delicious. All right, good. Well, I would stand no chance with the Yankees of the 60s. <laughs> I've got what these guys would be drinking, actually, probably in that era, or now this era, Canadian Club, although I'm mixing it, of course, with, everyone say with me, and Diet Pepsi. In my frosted green glass, or frozen glass thing, you know what I'm talking about. So, would your PED of choice, or your upper of choice, be not Diet Pepsi, but regular Pepsi? And you just yeah. get so wired on sugar that... I prefer of the sugared pops, Coke. If someone said, we can't make Diet Pop anymore, I'd be a Coke guy. Regular Pepsi's fine, but I'd prefer Coke of those two. But of the Diet Pops, it's the Diet Pepsi. Oh, wow. I don't you, know why. you swing both ways. You're a switch cola-er. Right. In some respects, I guess, kind of like Mickey Mantle. <laughs> The greatest switch hitter of all time. Oh, unquestionably. Eddie yeah. Murray's somewhere on that list, and so is Chipper Jones. Yep. Eddie Murray's mm-hmm. the one that always comes to mind as one of the all-time great switch hitters. But when you look at Mickey Mantle's stats, it's just astounding. One of the fun exposition drops early in this movie. This is exposition, the movie. It really is. And they only try the most flimsy of conversation excuses for this exposition, usually between beat reporters. And they're talking about the 1960 MVP balloting between Mantle and Maris. Mm -hmm. I should also say, I think this is a movie that you're only probably watching if you're a baseball fan to begin with. I can't imagine why anyone would watch this otherwise. Yes, probably true. And Maris was a good player. He had a really solid career, not quite Hall of Fame level, but really good. But you look at 1960 in particular... Mantle was a better player then. Mantle was the better player. He also had better numbers in 61. Yeah, but you can forgive that simply because of the home run record thing. Right, and that's one of the reasons why, well, probably the reason why Maris won. And Maris was, as Milt says at one point, most valuable player... Yes. They make that pretty clear. Not that Mantle wasn't great that year, too, till he started getting hurt. But when you look at slash line numbers, which they didn't do back then, they didn't do that even also 20 true. years ago, really. Then Mantle, in both seasons, and probably more seasons than he even won the MVP, which was three times, could have won even more of them based on those things alone. A lot of the players back then probably would have won more MVPs or been higher in the rankings if they based it on that. And that's one of the things about this movie. The reason why it's 61 asterisk is because the beat reporters you just talked about meet with the commissioner of baseball, Ford Frick. So Donald Moffat's playing him guy from The Thing. Also, Richard Masser. Maser? He's in The Thing also. He's the one who isn't infected with The Thing who gets shot by Kurt Russell. And Donald Moffat has that great line in The Thing. Fellas, I know everyone's a little stressed right now, but I don't want to spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking coach! (laughs) I think it's safe to say that this is going to be an explicit tagged episode, eh? I already swore before that (laughs) moment just now, actually. I think line one of the episode you swore already. Yeah, right. right. 
We'll earn the E. We'll earn the E, I suppose. So anyway, yes, Fort Frick meets with the reporters, and it's almost more them in this portrayal. And I was reading online that it wasn't really Fort Frick's idea in reality either. So maybe the movie here, Billy Crystal's TV movie, was accurate. It wasn't really Frick's thing about, well, Babe Ruth is my guy, so we have to asterisk this. The idea was all the records that year would be asterisks. There must have been more records than just the home run record. But this is the slash line thing. When you go by that, you can have a shorter or longer season. Maybe somebody plays 120 games, but their slash line is more impressive. It's not the only thing to base it on. We've talked about war and other baseball podcasts, so that's yeah. wins above replacement. I think some people are obsessed with that, and that's all that seems to matter. Slash line might be the second most important thing to them. And then RBIs. What does that mean? Wins for pitchers. What does that mean? Those things matter, too. Let's factor yeah. them in, maybe not as much as we used to. But if you went based on the slash line stuff, then there's no problem because Ruth had eight fewer games. That's not Ruth's fault. Mental and Maris, the other people, also played against expansion teams that year. That's one of the reasons why they won the Yankees 109 games that year to get the World Series again. <laughs> the Tigers won 101 and were eight games back. And the Orioles won 95 but were 14 back that year. That's how strong they were, but they beat up on some of these new teams. Wow. And that's why the slash line thing comes in, though, because then you can just get past this whole thing about, well, Ruth had fewer games. But then I love that Maris brings it up when he's talking to the reporters when they're warming up one day. Yeah, Ruth didn't play at night. Ruth didn't have to travel to the West Coast. And the thing that they don't say, or did they? I don't think they did. He didn't play against black players or anybody from Hispaniola. So Juan Marichal or Roberto Clemente, one of the great players of all time. That's true. But at the same time, in 1961... Very few African-American players, no Puerto Rican players, certainly no Korean, Japanese players in the league yet. All true. But even in the 60s, you had a much smaller league than you have now, for instance. So even if you're only drawing from a North American player pool, I think the competition's still pretty strong. I did think that this movie did a good job, even while bashing on the notion of breaking this esteemed record that belonged to Ruth, also explaining why one-to-one comparisons across generations is kind of a futile effort and not just because of the games thing but baseball in particular one of the things they don't say is the mound for instance when babe ruth played was actually lower than the mound became and in fact the mound height and distance to the plate was not universally set in major league baseball oh wow until the 60s in the 1967 season i think it was everybody well not everybody but so many pitchers were so dominant bob gibson especially maybe 68 but in the late 60s those guys bob gibson and other pitchers marshall i mentioned him were so good so dominant so they lowered them out and it's this decade we're talking about aside from those factors alone which are obviously significant sports and the way they're played change over time There will be more offense or less offense, depending on what the strategy of the day is that the teams have decided is the optimum way to play. And that's all true across, I think, basically every professional sport. But baseball, I think, more so than any other sport I can think of, also has a habit of changing. We just talked about mound height, but they change equipment. And one of the things that has become a big deal in recent years is the baseballs themselves, whether they're dead balls or live balls or the seams being raised or lowered. What other sport does that? Football, for instance, changing the seams on the ball itself or changing the type of ball being used. You just don't see it happen. If baseball is going to do that year to year, decade to decade, generation to generation, how can you truly compare a one-to-one, whether it's slash line or counting stats? And this year with that hard tack stuff because the baseballs are so slick. Exactly. Spin rate, yeah. But I think the greatest thing to think about when you consider any record 
And in particular, of course, the home run record, because that is the focus of this movie. And they do say this in the movie, too, is as great as Roger Maris was in 1961, as incredible as juiced-up McGuire, Sosa, and later Bonds would be in the late 90s and early 2000s and crush home run records again, they did it in an era where at least home run hitting was not terribly uncommon, while Babe Ruth, when he hit 60 home runs, that was more home runs than the rest of Major League Baseball combined. One man outhit the rest of the league in terms of power, and I think that more so than anything else just says how incredible that record was for its era. And even if it was broken since, it's never going to be broken in quite the same drastic way as Ruth did when he set the record. Okay, that's fair. I don't think I asked you what you thought of this. Now, you've seen it before. I've seen it probably at least four times. This is our first TV movie, though. I don't know why this didn't get theatrical release. Maybe because there are no big stars in it. Maybe they didn't think it would... Well, baseball movies aren't really profitable almost ever anyway. Even when the ones that are profitable are never the big hit of the year. Thomas Jane, Barry Pepper, Anthony Michael Hall even. Not really headlining stars. Billy Crystal directing is a name of sorts, but it's not like a Billy Crystal movie like it was Spielberg. Yeah. But this was interesting because it was 40 years after Maris set the record and it was three years after Maguire and Sosa. So that was fresh on people's mind. The Maris mantle chase wasn't so much, but it was a nice round number and we do it now 20 years later as well. So did you like this then? I actually did and I was a little bit surprised and taken aback at how many solid actors in the male sense of the word in this case, because there's precious little almost all men female presence in this movie, even if the conceit of the movie is it's being told through the memories of Mrs. Maris, mm -hmm. right? But nonetheless, there's a lot of actors in this movie who are really good. Tom Jane I have a soft spot for generally speaking. I think he's quite good as Mantle, too. He's quite good. Barry Pepper, I thought, was solid as a really solid and... He's right. given a boring character to play. He's a yeah. very... You'd love to know him as a human being. He's such a nice guy. But he is boring with the media. I can understand, to some extent, why these jackals, and a lot of them are jackals, not Milt Kahn, yeah. the Richard Masser character. I would say his name wrong. Maybe it's Maser. But he's the one guy who's supporting Maris. He seems to like him personally, but I think he also understands that he wants to just play ball, but they all want a story. And they're all harping on this and harping on this and harping on this. And that would push somebody like Maris even more in the background. We see at one point one of the many montages in this movie, could be called Montage the movie as well, where Mantle has a beer with him, of course, for one thing, but he's at his mm -hmm. locker, so it must be post-game. Three or four writers surrounding him. We don't hear what they're saying, but they all break into laughter at one point, and Maris watches across the way as if to say, why can't I be like that? But that's not Maris for you. What's that tennis player? Was it Osaka? Doesn't want to talk to the media because she has mental health issues. A, that should be enough. And B, she's probably, like almost every other athlete who's ever lived, dull as fuck. Yeah. Why do we need to hear what they have to say? Maris is point one with that. He was a very boring guy with the media, and he was a nice guy. Again, you'd like to know him, but it wasn't like he was Mr. Thrilling behind the scenes when he was being himself anyway. So Barry Pepper plays that just fine. But Roger Maris is not somebody you must sit down with and hear what he thinks about these things because he's just not that guy. Yeah. Mantle probably didn't guard himself the way that the guys do today. Some of the players from the Caribbean, the Hispanic players, go through a translator, even the ones who didn't before, many years ago. I think Nelson Cruz does that now, and he's he been does. in the league for a long time. It's almost like he went back to that, so he wouldn't get misquoted, I guess, is the idea. But when you read, well, they're all like this, almost all of them, what they say to the media, it's always the same boilerplate shit. So you yeah. go through the translator, just say what you would say anyway, which is nothing. Maybe even before this became so chronic in the media. Well, 20 years, it's been true for probably 40 or 50 years. But baseball players especially are some of the most boring, at least publicly, people we've ever heard in our lives. And Roger Maris could fit in so well today that way. 
you said like six different things there that I'm trying to remember now. I have so. never done that before. <laughs> so let me see if I can knock him down one by one. Okay, boring Maris, first of all. He's a boring guy, and mm-hmm. I can't fault Barry Pepper for that. He does what he needs He's to do. He's playing the real guy, so what's He's he going to do? The real, the real guy. And yeah, there's a bunch of other good character actors in this movie that I'm sure we'll touch on as we go through it, for sure. And I was just impressed with the number of them. I fully appreciate why this wouldn't have had the theatrical release, as you said earlier. The one thing I do think came across... Oh, wait, this, because there's no stars in it? And the subject and, and matter, the probably? Thing, yeah, yeah, okay, right. But I do think that... Billy Crystal. And this comes across, I think, in the portrayal of the characters of the sport and even the kinds of things you just touched on, like the interactions with the players. He's a baseball fan. He's a yep. notorious Yankees fan. He nails reason. the accuracy of the sport. This is one of the better oh, yeah. sports movies we've seen all year. The way he handled the sport and all the things going into the game, I thought he nailed too. Mantle, of course, is at this point the beloved poster child of the Yankees, and he's got this long standing relationship with the beat reporters. And I did find it kind of funny, the emphasis that the reporters kept putting on, there's 15 papers, 15 papers, 15 papers in this city, and I've got to find some new angle to print, and I've got to beat out all these other guys. I assume that was just trying to pump up the media pressure that was being placed on Maris specifically, but also on Mantle, just to give it a little bit more dramatic tension. And I feel for a guy like Roger Maris. Well, Mantle does bring it up at one point. That's not what you signed up for. You want to be a professional baseball player? This is the job. Yeah. In some sports, it's slightly different because somebody like Naomi Osaka, for instance. It's just her playing. So so it's not like you can say, talk to the other outfielder, talk to the pitcher or even the manager. It's her. I don't know what contracts professional tennis players sign with their organizations. Maybe you're just effectively a freelancer. But at least when it comes to a sport like baseball, where you as a player are signing a contract with an organization, you have in your contract obligations set out in it, like you have to speak to the media after games. That's true today. I assume something similar would have existed in the 60s as well, just given the frenzy of the media that we see here. If you're somebody that legitimately has anxiety issues or something like that, maybe in the 60s that wouldn't have been recognized and they would just throw it you It would the not have been recognized, no way. No, but I do wonder, though, if Mickey Mantle went to the GM of the Yankees and said, I can't speak to them. My head's going to cave in. I won't be able to play tomorrow. And their pennant was on the line. I think they'd find a way to set him off to the side. Unfortunately for Roger Maris, he was a second year Yankee. He wasn't Mickey Mantle. The organization as portrayed in this movie, and it would just wanted him to be the guy that was bringing the Yankees into the headlines in the papers more so than anything else. So I feel for the guy, but like you said, you sign up for it when you sign those contracts We've said this a lot and we'll probably continue to say because the movie does a pretty good job of putting this stuff out there. At one point, there is a line to the effect of one of the beat reporters saying to the other, I'm not going to cry any tears for a guy who's getting paid $38,000, which I think is something like three or four or $500,000 today. Not a fortune, but a good chunk of change in that time frame. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to cry tears for a guy making that much money because he's feeling pressured by the media or something, right? And I think the movie goes to great pains to say, look at what Roger Maris got put through, and a lot of it was probably unfair. There's no question. I just find it difficult to really feel sympathetic towards a character like that, knowing how crappy life is for so many people. Oh, in the world, you mean? Not as not in the sport, world. just in general. And as much pressure as you're being put under, and as hounded as you might be by the media for six months of the year, once in your life. It sucks. It's probably unfair. They probably shouldn't do it. But listen, in the grand scheme of things, I kind of agree with that reporter. That's why the players these days, because I don't know if it was so prevalent back in 1961 or even when we were young in the early 80s, say, but why it's so prevalent now where their response is just, I put a good swing on it. I got lucky. 
come on, you know these people behind the scenes are arrogant bastards. That's why they got to this position in the first place. And I've said this to you before, the locker room culture. Maybe it's better now, but no doubt there's still elements of homophobia and sexism and just flat-out bullying behind the scenes with these guys. I'm sure they have a lot of fun with it, too. But they probably do treat their own teammates and certainly the opposition and talk about the media, talk about people in the world, political figures maybe sometimes here and there, like crap. They probably say so many terrible things that no one wants to hear, but then they come out there and, yeah, I put a good swing on the ball and got lucky. So I get why they do it, but it also is frustrating. And if it's not in Maris to be like Mantle, to be gregarious and sit around his locker and tell dirty stories, because again, we don't hear what Mantle's saying in that one scene, especially during the montage, but I'm guessing there's some four-letter words in there that they can't print, which is also wise, because if you swear into the reporter's recorder or the live microphone, then they're not going to air that. They can't air that. Although I guess if you do that often enough, then they'd complain to the Yankees PR people and they would talk to the owner and then you'd get in shit from your own owner as one of the players. But that is one way of avoiding getting quoted. I don't know enough about Roger Maris, the man, to know the accuracy of that portrayal here. All I could think about was Barry Bonds in what was it, 2001, that he hit 70? Yep. And that, and Same year as this came out, a couple of months later, of course, because yeah. this came out, by the way, in April of 2001, then he broke the record in, well, it must have been the end of September, yeah, when he broke Maguire's record. It took 37 years for Maguire to break the Maris record. The Maris record lasted longer than the Ruth record did. The Maguire and Sosa broke it, but Maguire did it first. That's also brought up by Maris. What if one of us hits a home run that breaks the Ruth record, but then the other person finishes with more home runs? How do you square that? Well, luckily enough, not to make that all weird, Maguire did break the record first, and then he also hit the most home runs. He had 70 to Sosa's 66. And then, of course, Bonds broke Maguire's record with the 73 in 2001, the very year this thing came out. And nobody has hit 60 or more since, which kind of goes to show how difficult a feat it was. And we're talking about that in an era now where there's more home runs being hit across By everybody. the league than ever before. The 25th man on the bench has power, it seems. Yeah. I do think steroid usage or performance-enhancing drug usage is probably less now than it was in Maguire's era. Yeah, it definitely is. But there's a whole different hitting philosophy now, mm -hmm. and people don't mind striking out, and there's all kinds of things you can talk about as far as that goes. What Maris is told in this movie is what they're all seem to be told now by the it, stat right? heads. Yeah, it's, why don't you swing for the fences? He bunts to drive in a big run. Great play. And he beats it out, as I recall, too. He so he's that. also on base. Not only do they get the run out of it, but he gets on base. And then, why aren't you swinging for the fences? That is what they would say now, because all these huge shifts, they always say about David Ortiz, or, well, they all get shifted on now, but David Ortiz is a great example of that. Why does he never bunt down the third baseline? He'd be on base easily. That's not what the Red Sox pay him to do. And also, if he lays down a bad bunt and the pitcher can get to it fast enough, Ortiz is slow. He's going to be thrown out easily, and that is a bit of a waste. That is very dependent on who the player is, too, right? Because there's plenty mm -hmm. of players that will be shifted against because they're dead pole hitters. But the team and the manager would be perfectly happy with them laying down a bunt into the open side of the field because they aren't David Ortiz and they're not Roger Maris. What this reminded me of when we saw Maris dealing with the media was how Barry Bonds notoriously dealt with the media for some years. This didn't just happen when he was chasing the home run title. Like when he, he was young. The interviews with Bonds go not just national, but into Canada too. So I guess international all of a sudden when he's going to break big records, regardless of how great he may have been prior to that. And so, of course, we got that spotlight placed on this guy who is a top five talent of all time in Major League At Baseball. At least top five. But God, what an ass. Mm -hmm. To his credit, he was there every day and answering questions, probably because the team said, if you aren't here, we're docking you a salary. But he would just give them nothing and be outright antagonistic to them. 
And it's an interesting comparison because here you've got uh, home run king from, like you said, 1961 until McGuire broke it in 98, and then basically the reigning home run king 40 years later. And they're almost the same personality when it comes to the off-the-field public image. It's so fascinating to me, and it makes me wonder why that is. I know Mark McGuire was perfectly personable. We all liked him. This movie does have the opening prologue with the McGuire stuff and the yeah, Maris family's going that. there. And the Maris family was there, except for, I guess, Pat really wasn't. Because I've seen the real footage. I watched it again not that long ago, maybe two months ago. The whole sequence, when he hits the home run, there's a long break. Mm-hmm. And you see some of it in this movie. Sosa comes in. It doesn't happen as fast as they show in the movie. Joe Buck also redoes some of his voiceover work. He doesn't say a lot of things that are in this movie, or he condenses them the way that's actually played off in 61 asterisk compared to the real thing. Maguire obviously does really go over to the Maris family. Other people can hate Maguire or not respect Maguire, not like him the same way. And Sosa, maybe even more so because not only was he caught with, well, we don't know if he was caught with steroids, but then he did cork his bat and people just have these suspicions. So, okay, fine. You want to feel that way? You can. When I watch these scenes in this movie, or when I watch the actual stuff you can find on YouTube, I still get emotional. And I still remember when I saw that live and how that made me feel. So even if it is tainted, and it's a little bit tainted for me, if it's completely tainted for other people, okay, that was such a great year for baseball. Yeah. The Yankees' 98 team was one of the best teams ever, certainly one of the best teams of the modern era. David Wells threw a perfect game, but especially the home run chase. And the big thing about it, compared to Bonds in 2001, joyless. Bonds' home run chase, I think Bob Costa said this somewhere, was joyless. Actually, maybe it was when he broke the all-time record by Hank Aaron. I think that was it. But both, really. More so probably the all-time record. There was no real sense. It was this obligation of, yeah, we have to honor this great player who was a great player beyond anything he put in his body. And then he went and broke a record, and nobody really felt joy about it. With Maguire and Sosa, I can't say everybody did, but if you're a baseball fan in general, you did feel joy. And I sure did. I'm actually a little bit surprised that you say that 98 home run derby between Sosa and Maguire is a little tainted for you because... No, it's not. I'm saying it's not really for me. If it is, it's marginally. For other people, it is completely because they're so absolute. Everyone's so fucking absolute anymore. Well, they took drugs, especially Maguire, so I can't like them anymore. I'm not going to give up the fact I felt awesome at that time. And apparently this is real. This isn't some made-up scene. They pulled Roger Maris's bat out of the Hall of Fame, and they showed that scene earlier in the film with the kids. And I touched it. I touched it. This is what we didn't get in 61. This is what we didn't get in 2001. This is what we didn't get when Bonds broke the all-time record. But we got it with Maguire and Sosa. And Sosa happening to be against him that night, just dumb luck. And coming in, nobody told him to do that. Well, if they did, he didn't have to because it would have been before the game maybe. But he comes in and Maguire embraces him. That makes me emotional every time I've ever seen it. Just like one of the great lines in this whole thing at the end when, and this is probably made up, I wonder if Mandel and Maris are really as close as they show in this. They certainly mm-hmm. went antagonistic, I'm sure. There's that funny line where they find out they're feuding, and then, are we feuding? Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck you. That's a good moment, yeah. But good in the hospital bed at the end, Maris has broken the record, and they're going to go to dinner, he and Pat, but he first goes to see how Mickey's doing, because, of course, they want to win the World Series. And they talk about how he did it, and that record's yours, it's bullshit what they tell you, you're a good man, Roger. That almost made me break up right there. I think that Crystal's thing is portraying that hearing Mickey fucking Mantle say, you're a good man, Roger, meant more to him than what he just did a couple of hours ago when he broke the record. Like I said, I don't know what the true relationship is between those two guys, but I think you're accurate. What you're saying, the movie is trying to get across. As far as the 98 season goes, I still remember that incredibly fondly. I don't condone cheating in any way, shape, or form, and I endorse any league's right within their collective agreement to say, here's what you can put into your bodies and here's what you cannot. 
your union has agreed to that. The owners have agreed to that. These are our rules. Yeah, but when you make it up after the fact, and when the president of the United States was the owner of the team that was the worst for it, the Texas Rangers, so yeah. George Bush's team, give me a break of your fucking hypocrisy. And also, of course, Bud Selig, who yeah. loved all of this, because look how much publicity it brought to the game when it was nearly killed by the strike. That's exactly my point, though, is I'm fine with all of that, but you can't retroactively, I think, look at somebody's career and say... We think or we're reasonably sure that they were taking something they shouldn't have taken and therefore their work is now invalid. I think a ton of people do that. A ton of people do do that. That's not the view I take. Oh, I, I agree with the, you. Okay, we're on the same page that way, yes. Yeah, so I still look back fondly on McGuire and Sosa regardless of what they may have been taking. I still look back very fondly on the Bonds chase as well. I would never describe the Bonds chase for the record as being joyless. I think that was a really interesting run at it as well. As somebody even back then that enjoyed baseball history, I knew how long the Roger Maris record had stood. And so the fact that this was happening three years later, and not only was it happening three years later, watching Bonds do it was very different than watching McGuire and Sosa do it because Bonds is a guy that was hitting 320 had on-base percentages of like 600 because nobody wanted to pitch to him. The complete player that they weren't. The complete player, and he was still hitting home runs, the likes of which I'd never seen. McGuire did this too, but they were just moonshot bombs. I think the big difference, though, is we had that strike in 94, and everybody credits the McGuire and Sosa home run derby as that fun season-long exhibition of power that brought America back to baseball and brought Canada too, for that matter. And I think that's true. And I think that added a lot of the joy to that season. In addition to the fact that you had two guys that at least in front of the camera in 1998 were pretty personable and photogenic. That was a huge reason why it was good. Absolutely. Whereas Bonds was doing it by himself. And as we said, Bonds was already a surly His own teammates, let alone other teams. Yeah. So it's a really interesting comparison. I think there's value to both. I enjoyed both as a baseball fan, but I can understand why somebody would look at Barry Bonds and say, eh, joyless versus Sosa McGuire. Yeah, that's fun. Although, interestingly enough, as much as I've only ever heard good stuff about Maguire, whether it's as a player, teammate, ambassador for the game, again, don't care about the steroid stuff or anything. Sosa, on the other hand, I appreciate what you just said about that gesture that he made with Maguire. Prior. But otherwise, not so much. People have described him as the worst teammate they've ever had. Wow, I don't think just I've ever heard that before. Very much like the rep that Ichiro had in Seattle. A guy that was... Michiro. <laughs> yes, just out for number one mm. and... Turk Wendell or somebody was saying that the Cubs could go out and lose 20 to 1, but if Sosa had hit a home run that day, he was perfectly happy. Well, the personality angle, though, the other really nice touching moment, which isn't as good as you're a good man, Roger, but when Maris fails to break the record in Baltimore in the 154th game, it's windy there, and now he's facing... Hoyt Wilhelm, played by Tom Candiotti, a fellow knuckleballer like was that, Wilhelm was. was. That Tom Candiotti? Candiotti, yeah. Ex-Blue Jay. Yep. Just give me the ball. And then, of course, that's an accurate moment where Maris just grounds out easily. They have real footage in this movie a few times, and one of them is, I think, really the... Yeah, definitely some of the shots when he hits 61 is from the actual time frame. The TV yeah. shots when Bob serve and Mantle are watching the hospital bed. Right. Some of that's real. And the moment where Maris is tagged out by Wilhelm, the last second you see a black and white shot because his wife is watching from Kansas City, I guess it is. That's real as well. That was Maris. He throws his helmet off and they match that pretty well with Barry Pepper. And then no one comes out and he's wondering, where are all the guys? But then Bob Serve, who's obviously his friend, he's been living with them all summer long, comes out and says, Roger, we're proud to be your teammate. He looks in the dugout and he sees everybody applauding him, including Mickey, who's finally become the leader that he was asked to be by Ralph Houck earlier in the year. 
Bruce McGill, by the way, we've covered him a few times in podcasts before, and we're going to cover him more times. He was in a lot of sports movies. We've already done him in he Last was. Boy Scout. He was in The Legend of Bagger Vance. He's one of the golfers in that. We're going to do Ali pretty soon. He's in that. If we ever do Cinderella Man, he's in that too. But anyway, Mantle finally becomes the leader that Hauk wanted to be by leading the charge earlier when it looks like Maris isn't going to break the record in the 154th game, although he gets another chance later because they rallied. But when it looks like he's not going to get another at-bat, Mantle's the one saying, let's go, come on, Yogi, get something started here. And then Maris also does that. He gets over his disappointment. We still want to win the game. We're still teammates. Mantle was never a rah-rah guy, as portrayed in this movie, at least. But in that moment, he is. And it's nice he's in the dugout in that moment when Maris doesn't break the record in the 154th game because he's one of the many people that are just tributing Roger. If that was real, it would be the kind of thing that they wouldn't have shown on television and nobody would really know about. I don't know if the Orioles fans necessarily noticed it either. Why would they? They had a small crowd, but the Yankees players knew it. I don't know if that was a made-for-TV movie moment. May well have been, but I think... Crystal I, does lay it on pretty thick a lot of times, so yeah, maybe so. I thought that was a nice moment, too. You mentioned, incidentally, one of the characters that pops up, Bob Serve, one of the veteran players. He has one big thing to do. It's to say the wrong thing to Mickey over and over again. Yeah, but that's true. I just <laughs> What I say this time? I just bring up DiMaggio, and then Mantle goes on a complete <laughs> bender. And also at the end about, he ran that out like it was his first. I don't know why Mickey's bothered by that exactly, but Sir's face, Chris Bauer, plays the character pretty well. Yeah. I did it again, didn't I? God damn it. That's why I wanted to bring him up, because he doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do. But I like Chris Bauer a lot. He's one of those character TV actors that I've noticed a lot lately in shows like, well, not lately, but True Blood and The Wire. That game against Baltimore is an interesting one to me, too, because they do have Hoyt Wilhelm. In an era where saves were not a stat yet and closers were not yet a thing, was, I guess, the closer for the Orioles. Well, they say they only bring him in if he has a lead. Yeah. If and, they have a lead. Oh, interesting fun fact, though. The Wilhelm scream that shows up everywhere, little known fact, is actually a recording of Hoyt Wilhelm's scream he would make every time he threw the ball, much like Robbie Ray in 2021 for the Blue Jays. You're making that up. <laughs> Let me have this one, Ryan. I'm trying to get something going here. Anyway. I thought it was interesting when they bring in Hoyt Wilhelm in a game that Baltimore's either... I can't. I wasn't sure if they were Well, I already said they were a contender, but they finished 14 back. They, Actually, you know what? They games left, or whatever, nine games, because that game wasn't over yet. They were probably far enough back that it wasn't really a contending game for them. And the fact that the closer came in to face Roger Maris was met with such anger in the dugout. Bushlinger! Elson Howard! <laughs> Calm down! <laughs> The razzing in this movie was something else. And the number of times I heard the announcer say, these huckleberries are really laying it on thick. <laughs> I swear he said huckleberries to describe hecklers in the crowd at least 18 times. And I do know how much you love the word huckleberry. So I, I really could, do. Well, help more think. so from Val Kilmer and Tombstone. But of course, Yogi Berra, they make him jam in his cliches. He's in the batting cage and he says, come on, Mickey, 90% of the game is 50% mental yeah. or whatever. There's so many great Yogi lines. But not appropriate in that moment when he does say that, when Mickey's hitting bombs into the upper deck in batting practice. Well, I don't think I went over the numbers really at all, except that it did get released in April of 2001. So the reviews were very good. 85% of critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 90% of audiences give this a thumbs up. For the critics, it was an average of 6.7 out of 10 on the strength of 27 reviews. And because it was a TV movie, it didn't get Oscar nominations, but it did win two Emmys for casting director... And you said before you liked the supporting cast. Mm -hmm. Of course, the main players, maybe the casting director cast those two too, but I could see Billy Crystal maybe thinking of them himself. But you got all these key people in supporting roles, and that's why that person won that award. Also, the sound editing won an Emmy, and it was nominated for another 10, including for the production, so best TV movie, okay. the direction by Crystal, the writing by Hank Steinberg, 
And Pepper as lead actor in a TV movie. Pepper, not Jane? Yeah, because I think that Jane was as good, if not better. Pepper doesn't have as many good things to do. He's really solid. Obviously, it's about him more than it is about Jane. It's his TV movie. Pepper's in pretty much every scene, and Jane's certainly not. It's funny, too, that Barry Pepper and Thomas Jane are the two leads in this, because around this time, they both were in so many good things. Jane was in Boogie Nights. Smaller role, but he's really strong in that movie. And then, even though it's a B movie and it's pretty bad, it's still fun. He's in Deep Blue Sea. And then he did that TV show... And that was a couple years after this. Yeah, a couple years after. Okay, I didn't really like that too much. Really? It was my favorite comic book adaptation. Really? Okay. At that point, anyway. And then he also did that TV show, what was it called? Hung? Hung. Right. Yeah. But you look at his resume now, and it's just not that impressive. And this guy can do it. He can be a pretty good actor with some good range. And Barry Pepper also. Saving Private Ryan a couple years before. This was one of his big breakouts. He was great in that Several movie. years later in True Grit. But then lately, not so much. All of his great stuff was early on in his career. Jennifer Crystal Foley, who is Pat, who also has a ton of screen time. Well, Crystal, a little nepotism there. She got the job because her dad is the director. She's ask. fine. She's not bad. She's not good. She's okay. Does a lot of stuff with her dad or did back in the day, including a few years earlier. She was in Father's Day with Crystal and Robin Williams. What did you think of her, by the way? Because she does have a lot of screen time in this. I frankly thought nothing. It was one of those... The boring supportive wife? Yeah, it was just scenes that needed to take place to establish something that Maris was going to be going through. This is a movie that was two hours long, and to me, it felt like... I mean, I've said this so many times over the course of our podcast. Could have been a miniseries? It felt like either it could have been a miniseries or could have been much shorter. You got the point that Maris has stress, yeah. and he's been pressured. He has stress, and he's being pressured again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And again. He's stressed. He doesn't like the media. He's stressed. He doesn't... I get it. But then it occurred to me at a certain point that might have been by design. I'm trying to get into the head of Billy Crystal here a little bit because, again, not knowing necessarily what Roger Maris the Man actually was like and how accurately this movie is portraying him. If you are Roger Maris in 1961 chasing this record. Of 61. I love that symbiosis. 61 of 61. Damn lucky, but it worked out that way nicely. It's one of those quirks of history. But you are chasing a beloved record of a beloved New York hero. What must that be like, right? And then not only what must that be like, but if we as the movie audience are watching this movie and Roger Maris is our hero, and again, this is one of the reasons why I said earlier, if you're watching this movie, you probably are a baseball fan and know a little bit about the history of the game. And if you know a little bit of the history of the game, you know Babe Ruth and you probably have a fondness for Babe Ruth. And Mantle, too. And Mantle, And too. Yogi. But, but maybe not so much Maris. But specifically Maris and Babe, because the whole movie is, can Maris overcome the Babe's record? That's the whole arc of this movie. And as one of the voiceovers, I like guess Artie Green, who's one of the more cynical reporters, makes the point when he doesn't break it in the 154th game, he's boring. He's a good player, but he's not a Babe Ruth. And of course, Babe Ruth's widow. probably right about that. Well, that is true, because how many people really compare to Babe Ruth? A lot of people now, again, looking at the extended stats, the slash line stuff, do consider Ruth the greatest player of all time. When you bring in all the different kinds of numbers beyond home runs, RBIs, batting average. All the advanced statistics. Because those were awesome for Ruth. But the advanced statistics still back up that Ruth is, if not the greatest player of all time, is certainly in the top two or three regardless. And much like Shohei Otani now, was a pitcher too. Didn't do the same big things the same year the way Otani's doing now. The home runs and the pitching for him are mostly separate. Ruth we're talking about. But it is interesting that the person that broke the record was a good ball player, a very good Major League Baseball player, two MVPs in a row. But all of his other surrounding seasons were just okay, if not even pretty mediocre. Tim McCarver, I know this very well, said right. one time 
maybe it was 98. It might've been that year because of course the home run chase, Maris's name was back in everyone's lips again, but he went over the numbers. Maris had won multiple world series championships, obviously 61. They did win after, and they don't really talk about it much, but 1960 <laughs> yeah, really was when they had lost to the pirates in that infamous series where when the Yankees won, they clobbered the pirates. And when they lost, they lost close including in Game 7 in a walk-off home run, the only walk-off Game 7 home run in World Series history, Bill Mazeroski and Yogi Berra, who was playing left field in that year and in this year, more than he was a catcher at that point, is the one in the video you see. Well, it must be Forbes Field because it was a home game for the Pirates. They don't really talk about the fact that, well, they mentioned it a little bit, that the Yankees lost in the World Series against a team they probably should have beaten, especially with Maris winning an MVP award and Mantle still being great, even if it was a down year, quote-unquote, for him. Yeah, only 40 home runs? What? The slash line numbers, you look at both 60 and 61 for Mantle, they're fantastic. Yeah. But they had all these other great players, Barra and Howard, Whitey Ford, Kubek and Richardson up the middle. Bob Serve has got a big part of this movie as an actor, but as a player on this team, utility guy at best, which is actually kind of nice because you think about teams, who your best friend is, and it doesn't mean that the superstar is necessarily friends with another superstar, although Maris and Mantle are in this movie's portrayal, whether that was really true or not. I don't believe they feuded. I think that's just a crock at the time, and people wanted to believe it ever since, and hopefully Crystal debunked that with this movie. But the fact they were this close, and I love the moment, but the, you're a good man, Roger... That seems a little bit much, too. But the fact that Maris especially, and even Mantle, are really good friends with a utility player like Serve, that makes sense to me. Your best friend doesn't have to be a fellow superstar. No, I agree with you. I thought that added a human element to it, and it helps that I like Chris Bauer as an actor yeah. playing that role, too. I think it is interesting that Maris was the guy to chase the record because it wasn't a player of Mickey Mantle's stature. That's what's great about sports, though. When somebody yeah. who's a good player but not a legend does something like this. It ended up being there was a legend to a degree with Mark McGuire that did end up breaking it, and then Bonds also. But had it been just a good ball player, maybe Sean Green, the Jays and Dodgers star, <laughs> really big numbers, or Carlos Delgado, we like to yep. go back to the Blue Jays all the time, people that had great numbers, maybe not Hall of Fame players, but somewhere in that lower level of Hall of Fame worthiness. Fringy. Yeah. Fred McGriff, maybe. Or if it had been a Brady Anderson, the year he hit 50 home runs, somebody that was never a star, yeah. his numbers were big one year. But if he did it in that one year, and of course he probably took drugs too, that's what's fun about baseball. It doesn't have to be the obvious huge name because look how many times somebody comes out and they're going to be the next big thing, the great thing, and they're not. Yeah. And then somebody like Mike Trout, how does Mike Trout, with the ability he obviously always had, not get drafted first overall? He wasn't, well, maybe he's in the first round, but I think he, he was, was 23rd. Down, how does yeah. he go 22 spots before somebody drafts him with that talent? Because he was drafted at a high school, so... Well, look right. at Tom Brady. was drafted in something like the 6th oh, or 8th yeah. round. Well, Not 6th or 8th in the draft, but 6th or 8th round. Yeah, and I think you're right. That's part of the beauty of sport. As much as the modern era, post-Moneyball era, certainly, of the game likes to apply statistical analysis to everything, some people are just outliers. That applies to careers, but then, like you said, that also applies to single seasons. You know as well as I do what it's like when you're just in the zone whether that's for a game, for a week, for a season. Or for a couple of minutes and when you're playing catcher yeah, when on you're, a Saturday afternoon. You're in it now, baby. <laughs> yeah, and as much as I think Roger Maris is not a Hall of Fame player, he was a very good player. He had an OPS of like 820 for his career. The challenge of this movie, if you're not a baseball fan, because I think if you and I are just watching this movie, we're enjoying it just because we like the history of the game and watching a movie about the guy that broke the record in 61 is kind of cool to us. But if you're Billy Crystal trying to get a Joe Average baseball fan to watch this movie and take a rooting interest in Roger Maris and Barry Pepper, how do you do it? 
Well, okay, maybe he figured the only way to do that is to really play up, and I mean ham-handedly play up, the stress that Roger Maris was under at home and professionally. His hair's falling out. Yeah, his hair's falling out. hives. Exactly. Just so that the audience member that might not otherwise innately be interested in the story starts to feel for the guy, so that when you finally get to the end of it, and you get the moments that you described, the Bob Serve moment and the team accepting him in Baltimore, or Mickey Mantle giving him that affirmation. Yeah, that affirmation he's looking for. That you're a good person beyond being a great player. Because he took so much flack all year from everybody around him. In my mind's eye, that's Billy Crystal saying, okay, I got to beat this guy down over and over and over and over. So eventually, even the hardest Babe Ruth fans will just start rooting for him because they feel sorry for the guy. I can understand that because Babe Ruth is a tough guy to root against. And if you're rooting for Roger Maris to break his record, that's kind of what you're doing. So maybe this is how the movie gets you to do it. I could be overthinking that, but I felt the same way you did. I'll cut the movie a little slack because maybe that's what they're going for. And if that is, then I understand why. You did mention that Billy Crystal likes to apply a heavy hand to things. He does. And I don't know if you felt this way about the soundtrack in this movie, but there were various points when the movie wanted me to be emotional about something. Mm -hmm. And dear Lord, all of a sudden you'd get the soft wailing horn of emotion loudly piping up. whenever Nobody gets me like my baby. (laughs) Okay, movie. I know this is an important moment, but good Lord. Chris has only directed three movies in total and only one TV movie. This is the one time he ever did that. He also played a referee in Forget Paris. So I guess if we really need to find sports movies one of these days, we can eventually cover that. I don't know how much of the movie is. I forget. I haven't seen that in a long time. It's actually about basketball, but he was a referee in that. Crystal was friends with Mickey Mantle, which is one of the reasons why they let him show him being somebody who's a philanderer and a brutal drunk. Good reason or not. And he does have a pretty good reason, both for the pressure of trying to get through games. They all have that, really. It's not just Mantle and Maris. But what happened with DiMaggio earlier on and the fact that he's always in pain. And then the flip side of that, and Maris at one point confronts him with, if you took care of yourself and took care of your body, maybe you wouldn't be so banged up all the time. That's probably true, too. But it's pretty hard to disagree with somebody who is numbing the pain was something that's easy to get that he actually enjoys doing too, which is drinking and then also fucking around with the blonde with the big tits or what have you. But when he moves in with serve and Maris it's their version of AA and he does seem to be pretty good when he lives with them. The one time he brings a girl home, Roger's up, he's still awake That's right. and Mickey sends her off and they have a nice conversation. They had had a big fight. Every movie or TV movie has to have a moment where the players look like, oh my God, they're not going to be friends anymore. And we don't really ever see them truly settle that, but they have a nice conversation. And Maris talks about his tough upbringing with his brothers. His brother, he said, was a better player than he ever was. And here's a guy with, well, he doesn't know it yet, but a two-time MVP. He's already an MVP and he's on a World Series caliber team that did win the World Series that year against the Reds. And Mantle, of course, we know had a tough upbringing because he was supposed to be a coal miner, except he had all this baseball talent. And he basically cried his eyes out because he was sucking with the Yankees. When he was in his rookie season. I looked at his early numbers, by the way, the first year. They weren't that bad, but they weren't what everyone wanted, which was he's going to be as good as DiMaggio, who was at the end of his run, or as good, at least as good as Garrick, and of course, he'll be as good as Ruth. The numbers were never that great, but you look at Mickey Mantle's numbers, so much black ink on baseball reference. He's one of those people that is certainly in the short list of great players of all time, especially when he comes to talent. Yeah. More than Ruth, and talked about pure talent, the five-tool talent. Mantle's up there with Bonds, and obviously Trout's probably in that conversation, too, for overall five-tool talent, the greatest players, not necessarily the greatest stats of all time. And yet still, even though he didn't play as well as he could have, he didn't last as long as he could have in the game, 
didn't take care of himself. He missed a lot of games. This season and beyond, you start seeing him missing so many games almost every year. He yeah. played a lot longer for the Yankees, and then by the end, he was a shell of his former self, which was true about Mays, too, for that matter. Not for the same reason. I don't think Mays was a drinker. But it's funny, too, because you've got the drinker and the smoker. Mantle is an alcoholic. The movie's not subtle about that at all. And Maris is a, what, five-pack-a-day smoker, I think they yeah. say in this. Nicotine compared to alcohol... I don't know. They're both bad for you, but nicotine, when you do what Maris is doing, might even be worse. Roger Maris died in 1985. He was younger, I think, than Mantle at that time, but the one thing I know for sure is that he lived less of a life than Mantle did. So even though Mantle died pretty young in the mid-90s, I think it was, and effectively liver failed on him, Maris died of cancer because he smoked so much. So you've got two people who destroy their own bodies because of their own addictions. Obviously, the movie does very much focus on why don't you take care of yourself? Because think of how good you could be if you did aspect of it for sure. And it is sad to think about what if Mantle doesn't blow up his knee on a sprinkler head and go through that pain that he's trying to numb and have the family backstory that leads him to want to drink and how good could he maybe have been? I agree with you. I think he was one of the top 10 greats of all time in the game probably, but could he have been undisputably the best maybe it's one of those things you'll never i know. think trout's going through that now not for the same reasons but right mike trout was having another great year and he played some like 35 games i hate to say this because i hope it's not true but i feel like mike trout is now on the downside of his career because he sad. could recover and be completely fine next year but he's had some injury problems the last A lot several years not just one or two he's only 28 29 maybe he's 30 by now but that's still pretty young he's still pretty young i mean he could still be a really good player and get over some of these injury problems maybe he doesn't play center field anymore but man, you would think that he could have played at a top level that he's been at for so long until 32 or 33, at least. Yeah. But I'm not so sure anymore. We're both people that, regardless of what teams guys like Trout play for, they're so good. You just want to see them healthy and on the field because you're watching a generational, if not all-time talent. Right? We never really get to because he doesn't play our team that much. He's, he's a West, West Coast, Coast player yeah. as well. What you said about Mantle is absolutely true. I think he only played 16 or 17 full seasons in the league, and part of that was, like you said, injury-riddled. He was a shell of his former self. I think what's interesting, though, is the movie does fixate on the alcoholism, and to a certain extent really makes you sympathetic towards why Mantle's doing it. You touched on he's numbing the pain with alcohol in a way that he enjoys, and he even says at one point, you try saying no to everybody when everywhere you go in New York, somebody's saying, Mickey, let me buy you a drink. Mickey, let me get you a drink, mm -hmm. right? It's not just that this is my preferred method of dealing with whatever physical and emotional pain I'm feeling. It's just that it's also being forced upon me 24-7. Who am I to say no to that? But not only is it the ease of access, he likes it. He blew up his knee. They tried to say it's almost like DiMaggio's fault that he did it, but he blew up his knee, so he's got lingering pain. But then they give you the story... My dad died of this when he was 45. My brother or whatever died of this when he was in his early 40s. Basically, my family dies young. Leave me alone. Because I'm going to die young. I'm going to die this young. This isn't a maybe in his opinion at that point. Yeah. I'm going to. So let me just have fun and live my life and get off my back. It's a very sympathetic attitude to take, especially for a guy that's an uneducated coal miner in 1961 mm -hmm. to just assume, all right, well, I'm going to die in my 40s. I may as well have the time of my life while I'm doing it. If these two guys weren't talented at baseball, they would have been coal miner, truck driver yeah. type people in their parts of the world. One in North Dakota, one in Oklahoma. Absolutely. And it is an interesting and frankly accurate element of this movie that they all rag on Mickey about the drinking for good reason. But like you said... 
these guys who are quote unquote athletes who are smoking five packs a day, that is not good for your lung capacity. Future cancer considerations aside, that ain't good for you. Mm-hmm. Uncommented upon. In the 60s, nobody would have cared. You could have probably had a cigarette hanging from your lips. And they still field. had those ads that say three to five doctors, four to five doctors agree yeah. with whatever the choice was. The yeah. menthols. From a 2021 perspective, it's funny. But I think in, in 1961, it would have been perfectly normal. Smoke them up. A couple of things I want to talk about in reality. We've talked about a bunch of reality. This podcast is probably focused more on the real team than the actual TV movie. But one great stat, Roger Maris rarely struck out. He had just 67 strikeouts in 61 when he had 61 home runs. So that's a DiMaggio-level thing because DiMaggio had almost as many home runs as strikeouts in his whole career. And the most strikeouts Maris ever had in a year was 85, which was quite a lot back then, but he is a slugger and everyone's telling him to swing for the fences, so... He was not a strikeout guy. Mantle was more so, but Mantle walks so much, which is one reason yeah. why Mantle's numbers are more impressive, really overall, if you look at it more deeply in 60 and 61 compared to Maris, because he walks so often. So that bumps up the OPS. It bumps up the on-base percentage just by itself. Also, in watching the real footage of Maris breaking the record, it's on YouTube. It's very brief. You only see maybe a couple minutes of it. But Red Barber's understated call, the actual home run, they get the details right. And the other big one is mentioned at the end of the movie with... The Yankees broadcaster. What is his name? He was dead for a long time. Jeter still had him announce it. At bat, number two, Derek Jeter. Number two. I forget his name. I'll look it up later. Anyway, he's the one that is the voiceover at the very end because, of course, Billy Crystal's a Yankees fan, so that's why he got him to do it. That that says that Faye Vincent finally dropped this asterisk bullshit in 1991, but Maris had been dead for six years, so he didn't know that the record was actually his. It wasn't a shared record or a marked record with Ruth. I didn't know that's who did the voiceover, but... Bob Shepard! Bob Shepard! Got it! Ah, uh, Now you say that, of course. It's because of that that I wanted to touch on the insanity of trying to compare eras. Things like advanced statistics make it a lot easier to compare players than things like counting stats like home runs and RBIs and just straight-up hits because you don't have to worry about how many games. But it just blows my mind that for that long they had dual records in the record books just because, quite frankly... The baseball writers didn't want to dethrone the babe. And I get it. That was true about Mantle in that conversation, too. These guys are all sitting around talking about either of them breaking the record. Yeah. And Mantle was pretty beloved in New York. You do have that scene where he gets the giant hand for just coming to bat because, as Milt Kahn says, he's never been the underdog before. That's true. But still, Mantle was pretty beloved in the sport and certainly in New York by the fans. So for them to say that about either of them, but then I guess they maybe had to cover the fact, well, it can't just be because of Maris... But you think that if Mantle was the only one that was going to do this or even had a chance to do it, and he did get pretty close. He did have 54 home runs that year himself, which was a pretty uncommon number. If somebody's ever going to break a record, Mickey Mantle, a born Yankee, well, born in Oklahoma, but a Yankee his whole career, superstar, everyone in the sport, I assume loved him. They didn't love Maris this year. It's portrayed as being that way. But I'm of the opinion, and I know that Ruth's widow doesn't agree with this, obviously, nor Ford Frick, and apparently the babe himself. But I'm of the opinion if somebody can best you at something they owe it to the sport and to you as the one who has the record to try just as you tried to break some kind of record or maybe you didn't try to but you did break a record long before you should be trying to support them hank aaron to some degree supported barry bonds when he broke the all-time record but part of that was tainted well the whole thing was so tainted in the eyes of so many people because they all thought maybe aaron did maybe aaron didn't now he was very smart about that one of the guys by the way he and clemente there's a lot of them I wish this was true about, but I would love to have met Hank Aaron. You went through that in 1974, the year I was born. 
the racism playing in Atlanta and then breaking this all-time record. One of the great players of all time, but because he's black, they didn't want to acknowledge his humanity and he still fought through it and still did it. I would love to have met him just to say one thing, which was thank you for being such a tough, like Jackie Robinson kind of guy. And Clemente didn't really face that the same way, but man, I love that guy. I'm sure he faced it actually because he was Puerto Rican. I have so much respect for players that go through hardship and this comes to mind of course because of the way the hardship that maris is purported to have faced in new york when you mentioned guys like hank aaron and roberto clemente who certainly faced hardship of their own for differing reasons both guys that are notorious for being gentlemen of the sport and just comporting themselves fabulously at all times and being pillars of the community and everything else that goes into it aaron handled the bonds thing in 98? No, whatever year that was. 2007, sorry, 2007. 2007 yeah. Very well. He didn't really necessarily truly support Bonds, but he didn't say anything bad about him either. Mm. I congratulate you. Way to go. Break the record. But there had to be a part of him that felt like a lot of people did because the way he was so monotone about it, I don't know. I feel like Aaron was feeling, yeah, you broke the record, but what'd you put in your body? I agree with the statement that as a professional athlete or a fan of the sport, you kind of want to see the best of the best strive to be the best. If that's Barry Bonds and he's striving to break all these records, the steroids thing, it is what it is. We can't prove anything definitively, just enjoy what the players did. And I can appreciate if you're Hank Aaron, there might be that lingering doubt. If you were clean, would my record still stand? But whatever his misgivings may or may not have been, he at least comported himself well in the media. The last thing I did want to touch on, we did say like the sports portrayed quite well. I don't think Barry Pepper can throw. He has a the weird The first thing action. we see him do in this movie is he catches the ball in front of the Ruth Monument, again, laying it on thick, Billy Crystal. But then he throws it, and it's like he has to take four running steps to do it. <laughs> and I don't think he ever throws in the movie again. I don't think Mantle does either. That really cool moment when Maris cuts a ball off and flips it to Mantle, and they yeah. throw it in, and they save a run. But I don't think Maris ever throws again. That's probably because, much like Willie Mays Hayes, Wesley Snipes couldn't throw. You don't see him throwing in the Major League movie, or the That's first true. Major League movie, at least. But I do give Pepper and Thomas Jane credit. Their swings... Look real. Good enough for actors, for sure. Good enough. And especially Thomas Jane, because he's the guy that's got to pretend to swing as a switch hitter. Mm. We see him from both sides of the plate. Anthony Michael Hall, by the way, who is, of course, Whitey Ford in this movie, is a pretty important role. By the way, he and, of course, Thomas Jane do help the score factor, because they are looking pretty good. Anthony Michael Hall, for all of his gawkiness in the mid-80s, was a pretty handsome guy about 15 years later. But Anthony Michael Hall is a right-hander. He's not a lefty at all, and not really an athlete, I don't think. And we don't really see him pitch really much at all, but we do see him at least once, right? And apparently they did what they did with Gary Cooper in Pride of the Yankees, where because Cooper couldn't bat left-handed, he was a bad athlete to begin with, they let him bat right-handed and flip the negative in (laughs) post-production. Michael Hall, or Tony Hall, whatever his name is, Michael Hall, whatever they actually call him, he pitched right-handed and they flipped the negative in in post-production, yeah. I didn't even notice it, so they did a good enough job. I was going to say, the score factor holds up up until you see the abscess on Thomas Jane's Yeah, that really does ruin the noodle there, doesn't it? Yeah. Billy Crystal's daughter is fine looking, I guess. Yeah, she's okay. She's one of the only women in the whole damn movie. Yeah, I mean... Other than Mickey's dates. They look good. Yeah, fair enough. This is not a particularly scorable era anyway. It's a lot of dudes smoking cigars, drinking whiskey, and talking weird. They show precious little of these guys actually throwing, which is kind of weird to me because you wouldn't think it would be that hard to fake a throw, even if you're not actually throwing the ball, just the motion of it. But they do a reasonable job of everything like that. Something that goes uncommented on in a lot of these movies, and in fact, is one of those details that movies just get wrong so often. The batting order. 
And at one point, they shift the batting order around. When Maris, at least, is slumping to start the year. Or was it Mantle that was slumping? I think it, it was Maris. It was Mantle Maris. was up to a hot start, but the Yankees weren't. That's right. And Maris wasn't playing well either. So They, they, they talked about trading Maris. the defending MVP after 25 games. Yeah, which is wild to think about, yeah. eh? So they move Maris ahead of Mantle in the order, mm-hmm. and then Maris gets hot, and of course he's chasing the record. And at one point they have Mickey Mantle, I think jokingly, say to the reporters, yeah, he's chasing the record because he's hitting... Getting fastballs. He's getting fastballs. He's hitting in front of me. As a baseball fan watching a baseball movie, this is the kind of stuff I appreciate. It's absolutely true. If you're on a team like this Yankees team that had a pretty, if not stacked top-to-bottom lineup, pretty good lineup, and you're hitting in front of Mickey Mantle... You're going to see fastballs. You're going to see fastballs because nobody wants to pitch to Mickey with a guy on base, right? They're going to try to get you out, and that's only going to help your case. We've seen that at our level of ball, too. I know we like to bring up our own lives, too. But when you bat in front of a weaker player, they're going to think, this is the guy that's going to hurt me. I'm going to at least pitch around him. Nobody intentionally walks anybody at the level of ball we play, but I'll pitch around him. And if you want to swing at something terrible, go for it. I'm going to try to pitch to the next player. And I played in a league where you literally can intentionally walk people. It never happened to me. But I've seen some of the best hitters, very frustratingly for them, get pitched around. We talk about Barry Bonds, the most intentional walks of all time. Just to close out that thought about appreciating the realism of how a batting lineup can actually play into records like this. Mm. One of the things that impressed me as much as anything else about the Bonds record-setting season in 2001, and then even chasing down the all-time record, quite frankly, he was a guy that was on some good Giants teams for sure. But he was always the guy that was getting pitched around. He wasn't the guy that was getting pitched to in front of the guy that was getting pitched around. He bet a fifth a lot with both the Pirates and I think the Giants as well. He did, yeah. A huge part of his career, which means he doesn't have anybody awesome behind him. He might have somebody pretty good behind him, maybe, but it might be somebody terrible as well. Exactly. So he's getting a lot of junk to hit. Like you said, most intentional walks of all time. By a mile. You talked about Roger Maris not walking very, or rather not striking out very much. Bonds didn't either, and there were some seasons at his peak when he had an on-base percentage of something like 600 some seasons, he was walking three times as often as he was striking out, which is unheard of. Mm -hmm. With the teams giving him so little to hit, he still managed to hit that many home runs. Your head explodes. We're trying to rejuvenate, or what's the word? Uncancel Barry Bonds. Yeah, we're trying to recuperate his... No, no, And uncancel Sammy Sosa to some degree. And uncancel certainly Mark McGuire, who fucked up, but they all did. He shouldn't have lied. He shouldn't have gone in front of Congress like Palmero did. Palmero with the wagging finger. I didn't take steroids. Was it three months later? And he tests positive. Good God, Rafi. Well, it's bad luck in some ways that he tested positive the same year and months later. But McGuire was part of that too. I don't want to talk about the past. These people had lawyers. How did the lawyer not tell him... Don't say that. You're not there to talk about what you might do next week. I would like to be a coach with the Dodgers one day or the Cardinals. You're sitting there because they want to talk about your past, Mark. And I still like the guy. I think he's a good person, a good human being. Apparently, when he got a lot of money with the Cardinals, when he got traded to them, before the record was broken, he donated a lot of that to some kind of abuse for kids, I think. Oh, yeah? I don't think we ever really truly found out why, but added up. He probably went through that himself. Wouldn't surprise me a lot of these guys. So I do. still like McGuire and the moments in this movie at the end. You can find on you well, you can find the whole T V movie on YouTube. I think it's got some kind of either Spanish or French subtitles over the whole thing. But if you just want to watch scenes here and there, you can put up with that for a few minutes. And I've watched that a few times. Down the line, is it enough? Gone. McGuire hits the home run. Every infielder with the Cubs shakes his hands. He'd been teammates with Gary Gaetti, so they hug. And then, of course, we talked about Sosa and his own teammates. Such a great moment, such a joyful moment that Maris never had. And Ruth wouldn't have had it because it wasn't such a big deal when he did it. 
well, he was breaking his own record for one thing. He had That's set right. the record before with 54 home runs and 27 before that. And <laughs> yeah, 27 to he 54. He kept on breaking it over and over again. But those joyful moments, I'm glad you agree. Maybe a lot of people don't mean everything. Is it tainted? I think a little bit, maybe not at all for you. For a lot of people, though, it is fully. And I don't get that because it just brings me back all over again to how awesome that was. And a huge reason why is because Mark McGuire was so generous to the Maris family. And we see evidence of it. This isn't made up. This isn't some apocryphal story that no one knew until later on. We saw the way he was that night with that family. And then yeah. the whole thing when Pat, who's a different actress, by the way, than Jennifer Crystal Foley, the older version of Pat. I thought it was the same person with makeup on, but I guess it's not. So did I. It's a different person. Right? And apparently, yeah. Oh. So she's yeah. watching the footage with McGuire at the press conference saying about how... Or no, maybe it's when she sees him hug the kids. But anyway, she has this moment where she's so touched. And I think it actually is when she hears him say about how I touch Roger's bat, touch with my heart. None of that happened with Bonds or with... Maris yeah. and Mantle, obviously not with Ruth. So that's why that still means so much to me. It's so much bigger than baseball, that Maguire-Sosa thing. And Maris and Mantle should have been too, except their beat reporters and a lot of the fans didn't make it as big as it could have been. It is a very touching way for Billy Crystal to sort of bookend the Roger Maris story by framing it within the 1998 home run chase. It gives you the excuse off the top to reminisce about this past home run chase, and then it closes it out with that incredibly touching real-life press conference that you just talked about with Mark McGuire. It's one of the reasons why it's so hard to actually dislike Mark McGuire, because he does seem like a genuine guy, and he seems like a guy that respects and loves the game so Not much. Not many players really do. Or they don't express it well enough, maybe okay, even. Yeah. And the fact that he did pay homage to the Maris family and Roger Maris when celebrating his own victory it speaks volumes. And it makes you wonder if it wasn't McGuire to break the record, but it was Sosa. Or even if neither one of them did it then, but it was Barry Bonds in 2001 that actually broke Maris's record. Or if it had been Griffey. Griffey probably would have done the right thing. Griffey feels like a guy that might have done the right thing too. But if it was one of those other guys, how does that change the telling of this tale? Because you can't really have that bookending of it in the same way anymore. It doesn't end the same way because you don't have Bond paying homage to Maris. Almost guaranteed you don't. So it just changes the whole feeling of it. It makes me think about what this movie actually is in its entirety, and it really is. To guys that just love the game of baseball and can talk about the history of it and the moments that mean stuff to us ad nauseum. This may be actually what I should probably label this as. You should label this when you post it. Rather than 61 asterisk, should be 98. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. That's true. But that's kind of what this movie is, too. This movie is Billy Crystal reminiscing about probably his youthful... youthful Mantle was his hero and then became a friend. That's what this movie is. And if you are looking for a movie that is just a warm, fuzzy look at a piece of Yankees history and you don't really need to concern yourself with any of the politics that went around the game at that time or anything like that, you just want to focus on baseball and what it meant then and maybe remember what it means to you now, this is kind of that movie. Well, there are some prickles, which is what makes this thing better, I think, too. We've talked about 86 other movies over the course of this podcast. Some serious looks at a sport, others obviously just told tongue-in-cheek things, but it's very rare that we've watched a movie where I've gotten the sense that the person directing the movie had this kind of personal connection to the subject matter and was really giving it their all to do justice to the story. He really did. And he really did. And you might not love every element of it. I didn't love every element of the storytelling mechanisms that they put into it. But at the end of it all, it's like Billy Crystal laid out his love for the game in this film and I can't fault him for it, you know? I don't know if it's true, but I would not be surprised if I heard that it was his most personal project ever as a director, an actor, or anything. And of course, he doesn't act in the movie at all. Well, maybe he's got some tiny cameo we don't know about, but it's just him directing. And <laughs> he of course, he's a bit of a writer, too. He's Stan lead it somewhere in here. Yeah, I guess, yeah. 
He's not even the writer. That's Hank Steinberg. He went on to do TV stuff, including Without a Trace, mostly. I'd give it an 8 out of 10, despite some of the flaws, because look at the emotion it brought out in me a few times. I almost choked up more than once talking about this story. If we're going to watch a sports movie, let's hope the sports is excellent. And it really is, apart from some things like, okay, Pepper probably can't throw. Them as hitters, both of them. And Jane, maybe they did the same thing by flipping the negative. But it looks maybe. like he can bat right and left. It looked like it. I didn't consider And he was not a baseball player going into this, apparently. That's even no. more impressive. Uh, if you can even come up with a swing that can pass for a major league ready swing mm -hmm. and you've never played baseball before, good on you. It doesn't matter if you can do it from both sides of the plate. Okay, that was 61, a very serious movie about a very serious topic and a pretty long podcast. But in two weeks, because I'm moving soon, we're going to change wildly and go to a whole different route here. And it's also the, is it really a sports movie type thing? As we go back to the year Jim Carrey exploded, 1994, his first big hit that year was the football-adjacent Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, football-adjacent, I say again. That was the year of Dumb and Dumber and also The Mask. I do think it's safe to say that we are going to get as passionate and misty-eyed about the sport of football when we talk about Ace Ventura. As do we... not go in there! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm already tearing up just thinking about it. Well, we're covering something that'll be a little quicker and easier for me to burn through as the edit, because that's why we're doing this. But maybe we'll get some downloads, too, because it is Ace Ventura, a movie that was beloved at the time. Okay, we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at ScoringAtMovies. The email address is ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com. And to wrap it up, I'm not going to go the route of Sam Elliott and The Big Lebowski. I'm going to go the route of sincerity. You're a good man, Christopher. Killing me. He's starting to cry.